Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. Hey, it's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Mompos, Bolivar. That's five hours south from uh, Cartagena on the Colombian Caribbean coast, on the banks of the Magdalena River. And this is episode 383 of the Columbia Calling podcast. Later on, we'll be talking to Will Freeman, an expert in the topic of anti-corruption, corruption here in the region, not only Colombia, but including Peru, Guatemala, and others. So we'll be talking about that and, of course, you know how it is affecting the game that is the political machination of the presidential elections or for the presidential elections in 2021 here in Colombia. Great news, Emily Hart is back. Emily Hart will be bringing us the news segment right after these words here. Uh, She's been away doing a long piece, a long-form journalism for a magazine in the UK. So, of course, uh, you know, the emphasis was on that. She's back and we'll have a news segment with you shortly. Thank you again to all of my Patreons. I promise I'll have the Patreon newsletter for you guys out soon. It's been a busy weekend. First time in 14 months here in Mompos, we've had our businesses full this last long weekend, bank holiday weekend. So long may it last. And please, please do think of coming up and visiting. And in all due respects, visit small businesses all over Colombia if you can, because it's been a torrid time. So I'll leave it now and we'll be back with Emily Hart and then, of course, our conversation with Will Freeman, who is in New York at this moment. Thank you again for listening to the Columbia Calling podcast and don't go away. I'm Emily Hart and these are your top stories for the week of July 5th, 2021. Colombia's national protests are now in their third month. Though protests are smaller, they continue in many cities while accountability for the human rights violations committed by the state against the movement over the last two months remains elusive. State violence against protesters and journalists also continues, particularly by anti-riot force, the ESMAD. Negotiations with the national government are stalling, but local governments remain in talks with local protest groups. Roadblocks continue, and statues, particularly of colonial leaders, have been pulled down by protesters across the country. In Bogotá, statues were preemptively taken down by local government. President Ivan Duca, meanwhile, has announced an anti-vandalism law, which he claims will not impose barriers to peaceful protest, but will penalise more heavily those who damage urban infrastructure. 
The president has also announced the imposition of life imprisonment for child rapists following reports of sexual abuse of 14 children under the age of five at a government-run children's home in Medellin. There is some legal controversy around the new law, as studies indicate that sorts of penalties as these do not reduce the commission of those crimes. At the Truth Commission, Colombia's Nobel Prize-winning former president, Juan Manuel Santos, asked forgiveness for the mass killing of civilians by the military while he was defense minister. Santos served as defense minister under former President Álvaro Uribe during the peak of mass extrajudicial executions committed by the military during the country's civil conflict. Uribe himself has not announced any plan to appear before the commission or to ask forgiveness for the massacres of civilians which took place during his presidency. Colombia has officially lost its investment-grade rating as a second credit rating agency. Fitch Ratings has downgraded the country. This will make it more difficult to get loans and will make them more expensive on the international market. Meanwhile, Colombia's potential cocaine production reached a new historic high. In its annual report, the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime said 1,228 metric tons were produced last year, which is an 8% increase compared to 2019. And the third peak of the pandemic continues in Colombia, with new daily cases at around 25,000, while nearly 12 million people have had at least one dose of vaccine. Colombia has suffered around 110,000 deaths in a population of around 50 million. That was this week's news. Now back to Colombia Calling with Richard McCall. And we're back. This is segment three of episode 383 of the Columbia Calling podcast. My name is Richard McCall. As well you know, my very special guest is Will Freeman. He's on the line from New York. He is a PhD in political science from Princeton University. His background is uh, based on investigations of Colombia, Peru, Guatemala. In 2019, he did his field research in Colombia, and he studies anti-corruption in Latin America. So we're going to talk about this particular topic of corruption, of course, very, very much uh, always in the headlines or always not far from the headlines in Colombia and this region. So, Will, thank you so much for your time and coming on the Colombia Calling podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Richard. I'm really happy to be here uh, and talk about the subject. Well, yeah, you are an expert in this topic. And so <laughs> I'm going to leave it to you. But no, as I say, this is something, I mean, corruption, and we can talk about it in all shapes and forms. But you talk to anyone in the streets, you talk to anyone, you go out, you say, what's the problem facing Colombia? Mm. Inevitably, corruption will come into it. And I mean, you've done a lot of research down here in Colombia and of course, other parts of the region. I've spent a lot of time in the region and have been faced with uh, you know, right. issues of corruption in, in, on small levels in, mm. in this local mm. town and in other places. Mm. I, mm. Mean, I mean, what... I think it's obviously one of the key issues that needs to be addressed. And people who are in the streets, remaining in the streets at the moment with the protests because they say that corruption is one of the key Mm -hmm. things. Perhaps Mm -hmm. let's put Colombia into into context then. I mean, we know that there is inherent corruption in Colombia. We know it will continue for, well, for as long as we can think. Uh, but let's put it into the context of, of neighboring countries or the other countries that you've, you've studied in the region, just sure. so we could get an idea. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, thanks for starting us off that way. And I think uh, it's the right place to start in terms of looking at how Colombia relates to the rest of the region. You know, just to step back for a minute, I think it's, it's sort of easy to forget how recently corruption became a major political issue in Latin America. You know, in a lot of countries, including Colombia, until recently, security 
homicidal violence, organized crime. These were the priority issues topping people's lists, um, if not unemployment uh, and, uh, and slow growth. So it's only recently that corruption's really uh, kind of taken the center stage uh, in the political agenda of, of a lot of South American, Central American countries. Um, and I think there's, you know, there's a few reasons for this. I mean, if we step back in the 1990s, it's not that corruption wasn't happening and it's not that there weren't, you know, investigative journalists out there uh, probing corruption cases or even presidents in countries like Brazil and Argentina being impeached. All that was going on, but we didn't see legal systems actually reacting and holding politicians accountable. Mm. Uh, you know, there were some exceptions like Peru after Fujimori, where a large number of politicians did go to jail. Uh, but in a lot of cases, you know, these uh, kind of corruption cases, they started and ended with scandals. Um, and there, there weren't sort of uh, large pushes from prosecutors' offices or judges to, uh, to hold elected officials accountable. Now, I think that that all started to change regionally in the 2010s. Uh, and really sort of the detonator here was the Brazilian Lava Jato um, uh, scandal, which started in 2014 and, uh, you know, infamously involved uh, the construction company Odebrecht. Uh, the largest Latin American engineering and construction company that uh, made secret payments, as we found out, to illicitly finance campaigns and secure lucrative infrastructure contracts mm -hmm. pretty much all over the region. Uh, so, so that uh, Odebrecht kind of region-wide scandal really blew up in 2016 when the U.S. Department of Justice uh, published documents revealing the scale of these bribes. Uh, and it ended up sending former presidents to jail in Brazil, Peru, and Panama and, um, you know, putting countless business people also in front of uh, courtrooms and behind bars across the region. Interestingly, though, Colombia has not ranked among the countries where uh, Odebrecht has kind of uh, had the, you know, set off the biggest waves or, or had the biggest ripple effects. I, 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 you have to jump in there because I remember, you know, it's Ollanta yeah. Humala goes, goes to jail and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, Toledo, I want to say Toledo, in in Peru as well, so it took down, and you know, of course, took down Dilma Rousseff and and obviously mm -hmm. Lula's mm -hmm. Tard and everything else, and, right. and then. Right. Right. But why not Colombia? I mean, because <laughs> you know, the the journey I make to get up to where I am now is on an Odebrecht highway, and and you right. know, you, right. we know it, and they were yeah. meant to drag uh, dredge the river out front, exactly. uh, and everything. Yeah. In fact, they owed mm -hmm. me owed me money <laughs> for for staying in my hotel. So, <laughs> but and that's neither here nor there. But so, why not Colombia? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a it's a great question to ask, particularly when we look at, you know, the evidence that did come to light about Odebrecht's involvement in the country. So, first of all, we know that Odebrecht, according to its own testimony, paid uh, 32.5 million uh, U.S. dollars in bribes between from Colombian coffers. Right. And so we've kind of had I think there's been, you know, really in the Colombian Odebrecht two waves of, of revelations or information about this. The first is, as you were mentioning, there were these major construction projects where Odebrecht was basically paying its way to get um, to get you know top dollar contracts. So one was the building of the Ruta del Sol Dos Highway connecting Central Colombia to the coast, a project that started under President Uribe uh, and was managed by Odebrecht and its local business partner uh, Golfi Colombiana, mm. which is an offshoot of the Grupo Aval, right? One of these the biggest um, business associations of the country. Uh, so it's interesting that after that we did see you know a few middlemen arrested. Uh, Uribe's former uh, uh, deputy transport minister, for instance, got five years. You know, this ex-senator, uh, Bernardo Nuno Alias, as well, uh, got jail time. You know, Otto Bula, another ex-senator. But um, all in total, this group was about 12 people, uh, including some Congress, Congress people and ministers, and, you know, maybe one or two uh, top business people. But it really wasn't the sort of high-profile arrests and investigations mm -hmm. which we saw 
extending, uh, you know, all the way up the political ladder in other countries in the region. And, you know, it gets even more puzzling when you when you uh, kind of follow the case and see that the next big wave of, of information revelations was about campaign finance corruption that allegedly extended to the highest levels of politics. So what we found out next, right, was that there was over a million dollars allegedly going to both the campaigns of Santos uh, and his main rival uh, in 2014, Oscar Ivan Zuluaga, um, who allegedly both got large campaign donations from Odebrecht under the table. Uh, right, which which you know is is illegal in Colombia, both because there can't be foreign financing and also because there's caps on um, on how much candidates can receive from private sources. Uh, so it's yeah, it's just you know it's um it's kind of surprising that we haven't seen more heads roll for those allegations. Uh, in May 2019, Roberto Prieto, the ex campaign chief for Santos, was sentenced to five years in prison. But um, you know, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of talk of how Zuluaga's campaign, of course, supported by uh, ex-president Uribe has not been as thoroughly investigated, right? And we really haven't seen any major investigations or convictions there. Uh, meanwhile, you know, the, the private sector, which really took a, a blow in Brazil and Peru, for instance, and Colombia seems to have evaded a lot of legal accountability. So, you know, infamously, Julio Herlain of Barranquilla, um, you mentioned the project of dredging the river of Rio Magdalena. He was, you know, the main sort of manager of that on the Colombian side, worked closely with Odebrecht, hasn't even been, um, you know, the Fiscalia hasn't even used its full legal tools to get him before court. Mm. Uh, so, you know, just stepping back here, it's, it's definitely the case that we're not seeing Colombia as aggressively pursue Odebrecht at nearly the same high levels as we do in most of the rest of the region. It's, it's, I, I just find it that it just confuses me immensely, mm. this. I mean, the, mm. there's always the chatter about, oh, we're rooting out corruption. We've got, an, well, we had the anti-corruption czar who was jailed for corruption, right? <laughs> right, um, right. But then when you think of people like Oscar Ivan Zuluaga and this, this non-investigation, and now he, he's going to be, you know, he's put his name forward as a potential mm. candidate mm -hmm. for the presidency mm -hmm. for the Centro Democratico. But right. I mean, this is... This you know, we're not just saying I'm not just sort of identifying the right here. I mean, yeah. the corruption's mm -hmm. on both mm -hmm. sides, left and right in Colombia. It Absolutely. permeates everything, mm -hmm. right? Right, right. Yeah, and I mean, I think there, if we want to talk a bit about what, what causes this, I mean, I think we have to go back to how campaigns are financed. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this, this is a general problem. It's clearly not just about Uribe or Uribistas. Um, it's, it spans the political spectrum because elections have become so costly in Colombia. And, you know, at least my perspective on this is that it's very hard within the legal limits to actually find ways to finance um, the cost of a campaign. You have even campaigns that seem like they should maybe be sort of since, you know, a fairly sort of rural department running for a governorship in 2019 cost something like two to three million U.S. dollars. Right. So when you're looking at those kind of costs, um, turning to private sources is, is kind of uh, obligatory anti-corruption or sort of self-branded uh, anti-corruption politicians, which which we can get into and which is pretty troublesome. Yeah. And and, then, and one other thing is, I think, and I think you're kind of touching on it as well, is that, you know, if we t come up to the present government though, under President Ivan Duque, right. I mean, this government has filled these supposedly independent uh, mm. positions with allies. Right. So is there any indication that, well, of course, they're not going to properly investigate or they're going to do sham mm -hmm. investigations mm -hmm. to let these things pass, I imagine? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a good point. In, in February, uh, the current attorney general, Francisco Barbosa, did say that they're planning to revive the investigations into Odebrecht. But we haven't really seen any, uh, any bold moves there yet. 
um, especially against, uh, you know, it's sort of into probes into campaign finance, for instance. So I don't see Odebrecht really moving forward in Colombia anytime soon, uh, given the sort of, um, you know, alliances of the inspector general, um, of the attorney general, uh, of the judges. Um, I, I think it's it's hard to see that coming down the pipeline. Um, but, you know, that might be because a few things make Colombia different from other countries in the region. Uh, just to come back to that point, um, I mean, I think compared to a neighbor like Peru, we do still see a pretty coherent party system in Colombia mm. that might stop um, po politicians from turning on one another. In, in a country like Peru, for instance, is that there was so little to bind different political sectors mm. or different politicians to one another. They were almost all willing to betray each other in front of um you know, in front of uh, uh, good sounding plea deals. Mm -hmm. In Colombia, it really does seem that there's, you know, both in some groups on the left and in some groups on the right, they're willing to close ranks to defend mm -hmm. one another and not leak information. Um, as you mentioned, uh, I think those sort of the limits on the independence of the attorney general, who himself is a very close friend of, of uh, President Duque, you know, uh, this sort of uh, puts him, it makes Colombia a little different from countries where we see more progress. Um, and, you know, sort of one, one last, uh, issue that maybe sets Colombia apart is that um, we haven't seen in Colombia in the last several decades, maybe ever, the rise of a real outsider president to office. Now, in a lot of uh, sort of political science re research on the region, um, researchers have managed to show a pretty strong correlation between, you know, political outsiders, sort of anti-establishment figures winning office and then going forward with big anti-corruption prosecutions because they themselves don't have as many skeletons in the closet. Mm. So we could see something, you know, in, in that whole equation change in 2022. But I think just the fact that you've seen a continuity of um, pretty establishment politicians governing in Colombia uh, means that, um, that yeah, you know, Odebrecht or any other major uh, corruption scandal is not likely to, to sort of get the same um, judicial investigation as it might in, in a neighboring country. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of just a business as usual in Colombia. These things will continue. But let's let's talk about this a bit further. I mean, we've discussed Odebrecht, and so the nature right. of corruption being contracts for for mm. you know contracts mm. and commissions on on major infrastructure deals but what are the forms of corruption i mean i could go on about this about the low level corruption but in your experience uh having investigated because i think you were up in barranquilla and santa marta what were the kind of issues that you were investigating when you were up there doing your field work Mm -hmm. It was in 2019, uh, before the pandemic, and um, really the, the goal of my research going in was to learn about something quite different. I was interested to travel to these parts of the country to learn about um, the, the legacies of paramilitary violence and how sort of a more diverse political uh, set of political forces was emerging, building you know strength from the bottom up in northern Colombia, which was you know, historically home of the, the United Self-Defense Forces of Colombia. Um, but as it so often turns out with research, when you're actually there, you end up, you know, talking to people who, who quickly redirect you and say, no, this is the, this is the issue you should be looking at. And, or this is kind of what, what matters most to us here. And, and the answer I heard again and again was the changing form of corruption that people in the North of Colombia and elsewhere in the country that I talked to were really um, kind of eager to discuss how they saw corruption uh, taking new forms um, mm. in Colombia. So, so one way in which um, they talked about that happening was a shift from kind of more classic predatory corruption to something that looked more transactional. Uh, so in terms of the old predatory form of corruption, really the, the coast of Colombia gives you the best examples. I mean, you're talking about a region of the country where seven to eight families would, you know, usually trade power within a given department, uh, plundering, you know, public coffers, providing next to no social services, 
uh, developing kind of lavish, you know, personal fortunes uh, and using the bureaucracy more as employment for friends and family than to get anything done. But I think what you've seen in the last you know, couple of decades is the rise of increasingly professional political families, mm -hmm. uh, much like the, the Char family of Barranquilla, who are quite well known, who do deliver some kind of quantity of public goods at the same time that they're managing to steal a lot of money. Um, also, oftentimes, they're not as focused just on looting uh, as they are on kind of skimming off of the top of lucrative public contracts. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the output of that of that equation is that you get some public goods, you get kind of, you see visible signs of new roads and hospitals um, and parks, but you don't really have an idea of where the money is coming from, how much is actually being spent. Uh, and uh, concerningly, I think, especially in the case of Barranquilla, you see sort of a political status quo emerging that's very, very hard to um, to dislodge just because business and politics are so tightly interwoven. Mm -hmm. well, you, you mentioned the char, and I'll get to them in a second, yeah, but it's like where I'm sitting now, Mm -hmm. Right across the river, everybody answers to the Nieco family, or G-N-E-C-C-O, mm -hmm. right. Magdalena. Then a bit further up, towards mm -hmm. Magangue, everyone answers to Lagata. And then on this side of the river, and uh, every politician that we have, or mayor, answers to the, the Montes clan. And so, you know, I guess when you get up into Atlantico, it's all the char. And I just don't understand how it works, or how it can work, or I mean, mm. let's say a functioning society, because you, know, mm. you go in, or a friend of mine, or an acquaintance of mine, went in to speak to the last mayor of Montpos, mm. and mm. said, listen, I've got this, I've got this plan for you know, um, security cameras around the town uh, everyone's afraid of a, a rising insecurity this is what it will cost this is what we plan on doing and and the mayor went well yeah i approve it i'll sign off on it but you know 15 percent here and 15 percent over there and that was it 30 percent straight up would go off into someone else's pockets mm. and uh, how could you possibly mm. run projects how can you possibly advance mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah I mean, I think that, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of astounding, like you're pointing out, just the durability of these political families in Colombia uh, as well, that you do see um, them sort of persisting in seemingly every department. You know, it's it's a, despite competitive election families returning again and again. Uh, but, yeah, the question of, of how they of how they can still build projects at the same time, you'd think that, um, you know, I'll give you a lot of budgets. They can, at least in the short term, get away with building a lot of new public works, satisfying you know a certain portion of the population, and not really having the costs show up um, until much later. So how do we? I mean, how do situations emerging yeah. where? Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, just going to just going to say that I do think you know you have situations emerging where um, uh, the corruption isn't. And I don't want to sound sound like I'm absolving it here, but it's not as purely negative as you might think because it allows for businesses to build sort of real relationships with mayors and governors in office. So with Los Chad in Barranquilla, they have sort of built, you know, a very effective group of, of contractors who can, who can put up projects in record time. You know, you'll mm. see schools outside of local businesses, but I guess, you know, the, the, the cost of that is not much, you know, public input on what type of projects are being built. Um, it's 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 just so it's 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 so complicated uh, that uh, you know and also that we say in in, in this issue is uh, you know, it's not so not so negative as one would think because the char for example have been able to set up their own you know relationship and firms that know i guess companies that know how to 
work within the confines of a corrupt system, knowing where it's mm. going. And, and you just, oh, well, okay, I suggest, well, I can't remember which president it was some years ago or many years ago, said, you know, corruption should remain to sort of a minimum. It's like, yes, so, right, who, who right. Was it? I believe said, it was Pastrana. I uh, believe he, he told a closed meeting, you know, yeah. we need to um, keep corruption within its respectable boundaries. I mean, or something like that yeah <laughs> which is just the you know our, our overwhelming acknowledgement that it's not going to change but we you know just let's let's just keep moving on i know it's it's such a it's such a difficult situation um so but let's talk about then uh, you know another element of this corruption in colombia and and i mean we kind of touch on it and the, you know you've gone past the chars and you've gone past it what about the judicial, the judicial system Right, which is, you know, the I guess the institutions we hope would be furnishing the solution here. Uh, unfortunately, though, it doesn't seem like that's um, primarily what we've seen in, in Colombia. In fact, on on the contrary, it seems like they're often as guilty as the as the politicians. Um, but um, but yeah, just to take a step back here, I mean, Colombia really has uh, since the 1991 constitution developed a few institutions which are supposed to help manage corruption. So one is the um, the Contraloría, which kind of provides an audit on you know local and national government. Um, the other is the Procuraduría or the Ombudsman, uh, which it's interesting to you know consider if it really sanctions corruption, but it looks at whether or not public officials fall afoul of of you know codes of conduct mm-hmm. and can sanction them, suspend them from office if they do. And then the last and probably the most important is the Fiscalía or the Attorney General, mm-hmm. um, you know, which can investigate and prosecute politicians uh, who actually break laws in terms of you know bribery or embezzlement. Um, so each of those institutions has kind of had uh, its own degree of of internal problems in terms of um, you know selling and buying influence and um, being beholden to uh, to politicians on the outside. I think it's worth focusing on the on the prosecutor's office though because of uh, just how severe those problems have been. So as you mentioned earlier, the sort of anti-corruption chief of the fiscalia over the past few years, Luis uh, Gustavo Moreno. Uh, was actually arrested in 2017, sent you know shockwaves through through Colombian news because he was found to have met secretly with a governor of Cordoba, um, the northern Colombian department, promising to sort of uh, allow his investigation to be archived or, or you know put away in, in the closet in exchange for uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and so what ended up happening is that 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 kind of uh, that revelation didn't just stay contained as so often they don't. He ended up turning around and, and kind of pointing to a much bigger criminal structure operating within the judiciary, which has become known as Cartel de la Toga or sort of, uh, you know, the cartel of robes, because what it involved was uh, several top judges selling impunity to congressmen and governors for hundreds of thousands uh, in bribes. Um, so, you know, I, th- I think that, that it, it points to the fact that it's not as if, and I, I think this is an unfortunate way that uh, corruption gets talked about, it's not as if there's sort of uh, a set of honest judges and prosecutors on one side and, and dirty politicians on the other, and that it's just that, you know, the the unelected officials have to win the fight. There's really kind of a conflict going on within Colombian uh, judicial institutions, uh, which first probably needs to be resolved before you're going to see uh, a lot you know, greater accountability um, on the political side of the equation. Oh, so, yeah. And it's Cartel de la Toga and this yeah, Moreno. And was that with um, uh, the the Cordoba? Was it the, the politician Lyons? Was it him? Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, uh, that was him. And of course, <laughs> he just in a funny twist of the story. I mean, he was working as an inside source of the DEA. Mm-hmm. 
And the bribery offer was actually made to him in Miami. So this whole scandal pretty quickly had international implications uh, because in the end it was you know, U.S. authorities also asking for the extradition of the anti-corruption chief, Luis Gustavo Moreno. So Nyonyo Elias, who you've mentioned before, Otto Bula, who you've mentioned before, and I want to say Alfredo Lyons, but Lyons. That's correct, yeah. Right. They've all stayed in my hotel. <laughs> <laughs> really? Wow. Okay, what were those? Uh, 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 what were those meetings like? <laughs> well, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't here, fortunately, yeah. because I, I will end up saying something, you know, I'll end up getting myself in trouble. But one of yeah. them, and I don't recall which, was obviously sent down here with some remit. And they do come down here with political designs, uh, especially, obviously, just before uh, a local election year. And one of them was stopped in their car and they had the, they had the trunk, the boot, completely full of cash for payouts. Hmm. And the hmm. police stopped them, opened it, had a look, took a little bit, and let them go on again. You know, hmm. It's, hmm. It's, it's what happens because, I mean, you know, does a policeman earn enough to go up against this and have you know, him and his life and his family at risk? I mean, this is right. part of the, the issue, isn't it? It's like, hmm. how can you hmm. combat uh, the machinery for corruption that's so big and powerful? Right. Well, when, we, when we talk about the, the corruption within, you know, the Fiscalia and other judicial institutions, it's uh, when you see at what high levels this happens, it's kind of unsurprising that you, we haven't seen more honest attorney generals mm. rise to the top of the years. Mm. I mean, the thing I sort of ask myself is, you know, where is the talking about Guatemala, where there were these record advances against corrupt elites? You had, you know, internationally famous prosecutors like Claudia Paz y Paz or Thelma Aldana working with the CC. I mean, where's the Colombian Thelma Aldana? Where's mm. the Colombian Claudia Paz y Paz? Um, but, um, you know, I think when you look at, um, at the deep internal problems of corruption in these institutions, maybe that helps explain why we're not seeing folks like that um, enter leadership positions. Not, uh, not being allowed to, to practice in that, in that fashion. I, I'd like to bring this to, down to a, a very personal level for you. When you were in Barranquilla and Santa Marta and the North Coast doing your investigations, did you get yourself into any trouble at any points by asking these questions? Because people you know, what will, will sound you out as being a problem. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, it was, uh, did the times feel like walking on eggshells? Uh, I think particularly because it's, it's different as soon as you leave Bogota and, you know, a, a number of the people I interviewed were, were quick to point that out to me that, um, one sort of the locally is so essential to winning local elections, uh, to maintaining, you know, region more so. Uh, um, and then the other is that, uh, unfortunately, because of the legacy of the internal armed conflict and and also um, sort of just the closed political space that exists in a lot of uh, more peripheral regions in Colombia, there's um, investigative journalism and the kind of sources that would usually shed light on corruption scandals tend to be operating under pretty difficult circumstances. So for me in the, the north of the country, the Sia Caribe of La Sia Vacia, was an indispensable resource. Their reporters were, you know, out there doing extremely bold investigative work into the political system of La Familia Chad um, and other, you know, local elites. Uh, but they were pretty much operating on their own. I remember, you know, one um, uh, activist in Barranquilla telling me that, you know, uh, kind of investigative journalism and civil society in, in Barranquilla could be, you know, you could list the kind of major figures on one hand. Uh, because it's it's just uh, such sort of a difficult space to operate. Mm. So in terms of, you know, if, if that led to direct consequences for me, I think that one thing I realized is that asking about sort of, um, you know, public works corruption, it was sensitive, but people were willing to talk about it. 
where uh, where I think it starts to become really difficult to ask questions is when organized crime groups are involved, mm. um, which in Barranquilla plays out in its its own way. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think that there's um you know that's that's kind of where uh, really these you know sort of investigations can become more dangerous. Mm. Well. I'm glad that you're here and able to talk to us about this. And there's no, there've been no, you know, uh, thank you. Uh, follow, you know, follow-ons from uh, organized crime because, of course, that's getting in, in involved in all sorts of uh, really dangerous, shady issues. So mm-hmm. let's um, mm-hmm. let, let's talk further uh, about this, though. And, and uh, you know, we're looking at 2022. Eleven right. months from now, we've got the elections. Right. all the political machinations are taking place behind the scenes. Uh, Amazingly, especially in this region, tiny bits of road that for years have not been paved are being paved. Uh, little bits of, uh, uh, let's say, drains and sewer systems are being uh, repaired. And we know it's all due to, to vote winning uh, possibilities. And, and I've said this before on the, on the podcast, most of the people who I know sell their votes, let's say working class yeah. people, because mm-hmm. you know, they, they get a, a, a up to 400,000 pesos in these small towns, uh, which you know, is almost half a month's wage, slightly less than the, you know, half, half a minimum wage. But to get it by, by tossing your vote away seems like a better idea. I mean, what what are we looking at then again before twenty twenty two in terms in terms of corruption and let's say the transparency of the situation here? Right, is yeah, as we're directly become uh, I mean, each their own outs, let's say, to overcome. So the the pacto histórico of the left, the sort of left wing coalition that's taking shape and is all but certain to put forward Gustavo Petro as its candidate. Um, of course, he's pulling in the lead right now with thirty eight percent support. Um, I think if you looked at opinion polls. Colombians would probably perceive him as the least likely to um, to have engaged in corruption. But he's still, um, you know, as mayor of Bogota, faced real questions about management of contracts and irregularities in public services that actually led to him being suspended as mayor in you know a process that some would allege was biased. Um, others would say was um, was fair and even handed. Uh, but but he does sort of have to uh, overcome you know public distrust uh, on that. Um, in the in the center, there's the coalition of hope um, taking form to kind of put forward has um, you know faced sort of uh, again what some might say were, were biased um, allegations of corruption, but needs to overcome that in you know in public opinion. And then on the right, um, you know, with possibly a contender like Marta Lucia Ramirez, Duque's uh, vice president, um, I think it'll be really hard to sort of outrun the reputation of the current administration that it has failed on uh, on making meaningful improvements uh, to corruption in the country. Um, so it's kind of hard to see who can who can clearly come out on top here, given that, you know, at least some portion of voters believe every candidate has some kind of skeleton in their closet. Not very positive. Not very positive. If, 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 if we all believe them all, I guess I guess, like you say, we probably think that Petro is the least corrupt, but there are questions surrounding some of those contracts right. and so right. on. And the center, of course, long-term politicians. Who knows what's gone on there? That you know, the five mm. white guys in the coalition, the, the La Esperanza, and then, and then, of course, on the right, which is which is far more uh, highlighted in recent years because they've been right. in power. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I suppose all of this will play out. There'll be a dirty tricks campaign, like in in every election, and and we will find out more and. 
I just, I kind of wish, you know, and people go, oh, you know, you're so, you're so in favor of Santos and so on. I said, well, I was right. in favor of Santos when he was a president. If he is guilty in mm -hmm. the Odebrecht scandal, if he's going to be tarred with that, then may the full weight of the law fall on him as well. I mean, mm -hmm. you, I, I don't know. Do we, do you think in order to improve, uh, let's say, a situation that, that would veer towards more anti-corruption uh, acceptance within political circles, do you think a, a big figure needs to fall to, let's say, um, to, let's say encourage the rest? Mm, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, I think that to a certain, uh, you know, to a certain extent, if sort of a big figure fell and was willing to, you know, perhaps in exchange for a plea deal, which unfortunately haven't been used in Colombia nearly as much as elsewhere in the continent, but it, perhaps in exchange for a plea deal was willing to, you know, give up more information about, about how these corrupt networks function, that that might be good to a certain point. But I also think it's very possible to go too far in the other direction. Um, so, you know, you look at a country like Guatemala that was making record progress on investigating politicians and putting them behind bars for corruption. The same goes for Peru. What's happened in both of those countries now is that prosecutors almost went so far in terms of investigating everyone uh, who's ever fallen kind of afoul of a campaign finance law that, um, you know, especially in the case of Peru, they lost, you know, some degree of public support and there's really not a, a coalition there to sustain their work anymore. Um, so so I do think that there's there's a danger in trying to go after all the big fish at once. And you know, uh, Colombian prosecutors might want to be to be aware. You know, it might in terms of revealing information. Oftentimes, the way these corruption cases progress is that uh, it's really through kind of infighting between you know one political group or party that um, that more information comes to light. But that also there's the real risk of going uh, of going after too many uh, politicians, major politicians at once, and you know, in that process fostering a kind of unity between them uh, where, you know, their their number one shared goal becomes stopping prosecutors, which is what we saw in, you know, in Peru, Guatemala, to some extent, also in Brazil. Mm. So, I mean, basically, at the end, it's like sort of pick your battles, uh, uh, be very careful, see how you can minimize without treading right. on too many feet. Right. I think I think that it, it requires sort of, a you know, clever sequencing in terms of um of going after you know not not every major politician at once and that that may be the you know key to why at least until recently it seemed that the peruvian prosecutors were doing quite well you know first they went after oyanto umala who'd recently left office didn't have as much political support only later did they turn their attention to keiko fujimori but hey again this all presupposes that you have an independent attorney general and independent <laughs> prosecutors um working within the system and, and in real positions of influence. And I think that, you know, it'll fall on the next Colombian president to make wise decisions about, um, you know, about who they submit to the Supreme Court to be um, chosen for that position. It's a, certainly a challenging time. I, I don't have the, the most, uh, I would say, positive opinions about what might happen in the next 11 yeah. months and the, the elections, but I don't know. There's still a long time. There's still time and, we, you know, maybe I things could all, things could just, you know, become the best of all possible world in a type of Ponglossian situation. Um, yeah. But listen, I, 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 we've picked your brains now for, you know, for 40 odd minutes. And I'd say thank you for this, because it's really interesting to hear it explained so clearly. Obviously, uh, you, you're doing your PhD, your dissertation on this, so you, you know it 
backwards and forwards. Uh, but where are you going to take this in the end? It's a personal question. What, what right. are you going to do with all of this afterwards? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, you know, uh, ultimately, I, I think I'm more likely to uh, to work outside of academia after the PhD than than inside of it. Um, uh, and partially because I, I really enjoy, you know, writing on these sort of issues and, you know, for a, a larger audience and, you know, just getting articles out there faster than the normal oh, one yeah. to two uh, year turnaround of an academic article. So, um, so I think, you know, either in some form kind of doing research and writing for a policy audience on these questions of, uh, of anti-corruption in the Americas, or perhaps, uh, perhaps in public service, because I, I really think there's, you know, possibility to take the U.S.-Columbia relationship, which has always been a close one. And, um, uh, you know, as I think the current administration is doing, uh, put put an even greater focus on uh, accountability for corruption, human rights violations, uh, you know, supporting uh, peaceful solutions to, to social conflicts. Um, uh, you know, when I was in Colombia, uh, I just saw firsthand from you know people I became close to, people I met, how important it is to find solutions to those problems. And I think there's a role for um, for people in the U.S. who care about the relationship. Wow. Uh, to play there as well. I, I wish you all the best in that because you know we could use every every person who wishes to work yeah. on that uh, to help us out down here because there's a lot of again as I said before and I said again there's a lot of challenges ahead. Mm. But mm. you know, working together, surely we can do something. Surely we can achieve something. And so I hope to see you. And you know, I hope to see you giving these lectures and talks about uh, you know peaceful solutions to conflict and indeed uh, anti-corruption drives and so on and policy that can be employed. So let me take this moment to say thank you so much to Will Freeman for his time to talk about his sort of anti-corruption, corruption in Latin America. Of course, uh, you know, thinking about Odebrecht, thinking about the Chas in Barranquilla and up on the coast, Guatemala, Peru, obviously everything in Colombia. It's been really, really interesting. And I know my people, my, my listeners will will enjoy this. I know they will, because of course, it's it's a topic that is so current here. So again, thank you for your time. Thanks so much for having me on. It was uh, really a pleasure. It was, it's been fun. It's been fun. We'll be back next week with someone else talking something Columbia related. Of course, remember, if you're out there and wish to support the Columbia Calling uh, podcast, please uh, sign on to Patreon. That's patreon.com, Columbia Calling. And for as little as $2 a month, you can help our economics, viability, and sustainability here. Uh, I've been Richard McCall. This has been Columbia Calling. Thank you, all of you, for listening. Thank you again to Will Freeman. Be sure to subscribe and then, of course, tune in next week. And goodbye. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.